Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. Uh, I feel sad for you and for myself because it just means you probably couldn't find an Airbnb or something for Labor Day, so you're stuck in Atlanta. Um, we're, all, we're all in it together, uh, the few, the proud, the vacationless. Before we start, I just want to say University of Georgia is very good at football. That was evident. Um, my dad, my daughter, myself, we were all there yesterday, and we were, uh, they put us on the field to play the second half. It was so bad, so I, I'm a little sore today. Um, kidding, kidding. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 14. Today we're going to look at a really challenging passage of Scripture uh, from, from Jesus' own heart and his own lips around discipleship. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to, to hold these words with you. And I pray and hope that we'll be able to, um, to hear Jesus today and to hear his heart for us and to grow as a result. So I'm going to read, then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Jesus said, I've said these things to you. Oh, no, that's not it. Um, there we are. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... None of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, help us to hear Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to, as we listen to, to Jesus, as we listen to this really intense teaching from our Savior, I pray that you would help us to think about our own lives, to really try to think about what you are inviting us to think about, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask for the reality of your presence to be here in our own hearts, God, as we carve out this space to uh, do our very best to think and reflect in intentional ways about our life, about our life with you, about the life we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when, when I run into to tough texts like, like this one, um, and when I was young in my faith, um, I loved this passage of scripture for maybe some of the wrong reasons. Uh, I, um, I wanted to do something really epic for God. And maybe some of you are in that space. And the, the idea of like giving up everything to follow him was a, a really appealing idea to me in my, in my zeal and in my youth when I was a very, very young pastor. And as I've lived my life uh, before God and, and gone through uh, more of what I think Jesus is talking about here around the cost of, of saying yes to him, which all, always involves saying no to other things, including our own agenda, uh, I feel like I identify with this text in a, in a more, I think I can hear Jesus in a way that's not just romantic or like, uh, let's go do something crazy for God and more of a, 
it's really hard to follow Jesus. And there's a real cost to saying yes to him. And so I feel like in many respects, I'm, I'm holding this passage in a way where I feel like I'm hearing Jesus in some ways that maybe when I was young, I couldn't hear him because I was just so pumped about doing something big. And maybe you're in that place where you are coming through a season of trying to do something really big. And now you're trying to go, well, what does Jesus, what does it actually mean uh, to hear Jesus in this way? So when I run into stuff that stumps me, I usually go to N.T. Wright to find out what he thinks about it. So if you hang out at Trinity for a few minutes, uh, you know that um, I love this guy. We, my wife and I lived in, in England 23 or 4 years ago. And our, our little youth group that we led in, in the rural England, a lot of our kids went on to university at Durham. And so uh, they would go to, to Durham University. And at that time, uh, shortly after we left, N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham. And so lots of the kids that we saw come to know the Lord were like married and their kids were baptized by, by N.T. Wright. So I just, I love the guy. Um, he doesn't know me, but I know him and we're like this, uh, friends. Um, here, here's what N.T. Wright says about this passage. He says, imagine a politician saying these words. So like, let's just put like Jesus as politician on the table for a second. If you want me to be your president, you need to turn against those you love. You need to be willing to lose your life and your possessions. You need to be willing to pick up your cross or hangman's noose or electric chair and follow me with those things now. If you don't do these things, then don't vote for me. That just doesn't work. If Jesus had done that, is he, if he had been a politician, his candidacy would have been over this day because people would have thought, what on earth is he even getting on about? They would have probably not even been angry with him. They would have just walked away confused thinking this is a really bad strategy for building a crowd. Here's what Wright asks us to consider. He says, supposing instead of a politician, we think of a leader of a great expedition forging a way through high and dangerous mountains to bring urgent medical aid to villagers who are cut off from the rest of the world. So think about that and hear these words. If you want to come any further, the leader says, you'll have to leave your packs behind. From here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff. You probably won't find that pack again. And you'd better send your postcards home. This is a dangerous route and it's likely that some of us won't make it home. See, we could understand those words. We may not like those words, but those words, I think, get at the spirit, the heart of what Jesus is saying. He is not coming to us in a moment like this, in a teaching moment like this as a politician trying to garner your mindless obedience. He is essentially saying this life is about going somewhere and it's difficult to get there, but it's really important that you travel light and decide now whether you're going to follow me into some dangerous places. We're going to spend a few moments thinking about this text. We're going to try to let Jesus speak to us. Uh, we're going to try to hear him afresh and anew in our own modern age and context and see if we can receive something from him. Number one, we have to ask the question because Jesus is actually asking us to ask the question, well, so how much does it actually cost to be Christian? In terms of a dangerous expedition, what does it cost us to go on this expedition? It, I just want to say it costs a lot to be a Christian. There have been men and women who have stood in places similar to the one I'm standing in right now and not told you the truth about that. Have said to you, this is just going to make you feel good. 
Uh, you're going to receive a lot of comfort. You're going to receive a lot of joy. You're going to make a lot of new friends. All of that stuff is true. Like Jesus does comfort us. We do make friends along the way. Uh, there are times where our hearts feel good, but what we haven't always told us is um, one another and people in my job have not told you is that this is like really expensive. Like following Jesus is not always therapeutic. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. Jesus is saying here, we're going somewhere. And he was literally going somewhere. Uh, at this moment in the gospel of Luke, Jesus was actually walking to Jerusalem. He was headed to Jerusalem. And what we see at the very beginning of this passage is that there were increasing numbers of people who were gathering around him. They were uh, flocking to him because they liked his sermons. Um, they, they liked his miracles. They, they liked to, to hear uh, these things that Jesus was saying. They liked to see the things that he was doing. And so the crowds are getting bigger. And you see this actually in the gospel. There are these moments in Jesus's ministry where the, the like church growth was happening, where people were curious and they were interested and they were inspired. And every time that happened, Jesus would turn and do something like this. He would say, y'all need to really think about why you're doing this. Because I'm like walking to, to the cross. I'm going to the cross. And if you follow me, I'm asking you to go to the cross. And that's like a really provocative thing to say. And I want you to stop for a second and realize Jesus is speaking about picking up the cross before he went to the cross. So we think of the cross in romantic or nostalgic terms because it's like the symbol, the principal symbol of Christianity. This is before Jesus went to the cross. And he's saying like, we're moving toward Roman execution, and I want you to think about whether you want to move toward that, because that's where we're going. And that's really sobering. Like, people are going, dude, we just thought the sermons were good. Like, we, we just liked the way this was going. And Jesus is saying, but we're headed there. And I think that it's actually really important for us to occasionally stop and step back and go, Am I up for this thing that feels pretty expensive? It, it maybe hasn't cost you a ton to, to be a follower of God. Um, maybe you've just received a lot, and that is amazing. But I'm just going to tell you, if you do this long enough, it's going to cost you. This idea of allegiance to and submission to God is really powerful, and yet it's really hard sometimes. I feel like in my adult life and in the last few years, I feel like I have paid more for saying yes to Jesus than I have at other points in my life. It's cost me, and it's sobering. As we move increasingly into a post-Christian space, I believe that we're going to increasingly find the cost associated with saying yes to God. And it doesn't mean that God's asking you to just be like a butt for the sake of being a butt and say you're paying a price for God. That's not what he's saying. I think that Jesus actually is saying, I'm going to places of suffering and sacrifice and I'm going to ask you to follow me there. There's also joy, but there is a cost. And I don't know that we've done enough to think about the cost. So that's what we're going to do uh, for the next few moments. We're just going to let Jesus speak to us. The second thing he says is like, hate your mama, you know, um, and that's really hard. You know, it's like, blah, if you don't like your parents, you know, you can like die on this hill. Um, but that's not what Jesus is getting at there. There's actually no room for hatred as we understand that term in within the teachings of Jesus. So then what is Jesus doing? 
I just want to say, Jesus is doing something that was really common. He was using a rabbinical teaching method. Uh, Jesus was a rabbi, and he was using a teaching method that engaged hyperbole in order to get people to stop and listen. It's the same thing Jesus was doing when he said, like, if your eye causes you to sin, like, pluck it out. He wasn't actually advocating that, you know, they hand out knives and cut each. You can lust with no eyeballs, um, just to be candid. Uh, So that's not what Jesus was saying. What he was doing in this context and in that context is he was making a provocative statement to make you stop and think for a second. So when he says, hate your mother, your father, even your own self, what he's saying is, I want you to be clear about your primary allegiance. And if it is to the one who is forming you, to God, to Jesus, then by contrast, everything else will feel like hatred. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to order your loves. And I don't think we've actually done this work. I know there are seasons, there are layers of my own life where I'm doing this work now. It's like as a pastor, I'm saying, God, this is, this is more intense, Lord. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, have you ordered your love? And am I at the top? And the truth of the matter is the answer for many of us is no, not, not really, not, not always at least, not, not as consistently. Maybe never have we felt that way about God. So what Jesus is doing right now is he's making a very provocative statement to get us to think about him. I just want to say Jesus wants to be in a deep and abiding and transformative relationship with you. He wants your whole allegiance so that he can change your life. That's what he wants. What we often give him is a kind of space in the corner of a really busy life. And sometimes it starts that way, but I want you to know that if your life with God has started that way, I'm gonna make a little room in the middle of a busy life. What he wants is everything. What he wants is our allegiance and our love so that he can do good and abiding and powerful and transformative things in our lives. That's what Jesus wants. And by contrast, it'll seem like we don't care about other things nearly as much as we used to care about those things. He's not asking you to actually hate your mom. If you hate your mom, get get into counseling. He's asking you to love less by comparison, so much less that to an uninformed or ignorant observer, it would seem like you are so here that these things are not driving your life. They're not your true north. One of the things that I think I discovered about my own life, you know, it's really hard when you are... um, when you go through a massively upheaving and transformative time in front of other people, (laughs) Um, and that's what I've done over the last couple of years, I feel like I have fallen off of a first mountain and got on a second mountain, like with a microphone in my hand. It's a very uncomfortable place to be, to, to be in that place. One of the things that I had to start contending with is that part of why I got into ministry Uh, Part of why I got into uh, doing this thing that I'm doing was because I wanted to do good and be affirmed by other people in trying to do good. So you see how subtle that is? It's like, 
I needed to be settled to some extent externally in order to know that I was okay. Now, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have said that. Some of you may know that about me, um, but I didn't know that. I, I'm always late to the party uh, when it comes to knowing things. And one of the, the, the things that was so provocative about this last season is I had to recognize like a shadow, at least in part, got me into this. I remember my, my counselor, my therapist um, saying to me, part of your shadow got you into your job. Are you willing to really look at that full on in the face and see if it's all shadow or if there's something else there that's really from the Lord? And he knew there was something else there from the Lord. He just wanted me to be brave enough to ask the question. I believe that the Lord is wanting for all of us to, to step back and actually ask, where have I looked externally for a kind of orientation in ways that have kept me from being who I'm supposed to be in the Lord. Now, if you grew up in a home where you became a Christian and your family was so hostile to Christianity that they've rejected you, then this text is like literally applied for you. Like you've paid a price. You've lost relationship maybe because you've said yes to Jesus and people have said no to you. But for all the rest of us, I just want you to look at where do you look externally for validation in ways that sometimes pull you away from the highest and best, the thing that God would have for you. Some of us have friends actually who move us away from what the Lord has for us. You have friends that in the, in the, in the tone of 1 Corinthians where, where Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. Some of us have friends that move us away from the good life that Jesus has. He wants us to be willing to reevaluate some of those friendships. Some of you need to like step back from some relationships that are moving you away from what God has for you, that are leading you into sin. But, but for all of us, we have to actually say, who's driving? Where's my true north? Who's leading the direction and the trajectory of my life? It can't be your wife. That's too much to put on her. It can't be your, your dad. It, it, God help you. It can't be your kids. It can't be all these things that we tend to look to. We've got to actually do the hard work of saying, Jesus, you're saying that you have something for us. How do we orient our lives away from the things that are keeping us from this? Now, if you think your spouse is the problem and this is an excuse for you to like lop off a relationship because of go to counseling again, like go get, go see a counselor. Don't do stupid stuff because you just are like triggered by someone in your life. Like there's work sometimes to do. But I'm going to tell you, there is a reordering of priority that Jesus always asks us to do that manifests in our own life, like with people in our lives. Do you know if you have a, I'm not a fisherman or even a fisher person. I don't, I don't fish. Fish kind of freak me out a little bit. So they're wet, you know, slimy. Um, so I'm a city person in that respect. But I've heard this. If you have a 25-pound test line and you catch a 50-pound fish, it's likely to break the line. It's not because the lines. It's because you're putting too much weight on it. And some of us have just put way too much weight on relationships. The relationship isn't bad. You've just put, you've asked it to do something it's not supposed to do. Do you hear that? Jesus has lots. He can hold the weight of your life. No one else can. Your husband can't, your wife can't, your kids can't, your friends can't, your pastor can't. He can, though. 
The next thing Jesus says in this passage is plan to finish. And he uses two examples, a, a building and a war. And I love the imagery and, um, because the imagery starts in a more benign space. It's like a fella has an idea. He's going to build a building. He's, he basically says without a plan for what the building is and what it's going to cost, um, if you don't have a plan and you start building with no end in mind, then you're not going to know whether you've got there or not, and you may run out of resources. The only limitation in the first example Jesus gives is a lack of resources, time, money. Um, so he says, if you don't finish, people are going to look at it, and it's going to be a symbol of your shame. And this is because ancient Semitic culture was a shame-based culture. So it was, it was an honor-based culture. So if you start something and fail, then it stands as like a, a, a memorial to your inability to plan. And he says, some of our lives are that way. We didn't know where it was going, so we didn't ever get there. We didn't know how long it would take or how much it would cost us. And so we have these unfinished projects of our life. So before I get into your life and mine, I just want to say God finishes what he starts. So God first, he finishes. God is not a foolish builder. God does not lose wars. God finishes that which he begins. And so he's saying, because I finish. There's this beautiful passage in Philippians that says God is able to complete in you that which he has begun. God finishes. There were moments in the last year where I wondered whether God was going to abandon the project that was my life. I wondered, am, am I just a, an unfinished building? And God's response was no. I will hang in there with you. I finish what I begin. He invites us to participate with him, though, in that work. But he doesn't abandon ship. We do. He doesn't. So this image of a building, I just want to, how much stuff do you start and not finish? How much do we not count the cost? How much uh, of the time do we get into a thing and then go, ooh, whoa, and then we just go do something else? The second picture is of a war. Like wars are not fun to talk. I, I don't like talking about wars stuff. God's not a war, like a, let's go to war. Um, so I'm going to flip this on its head because this is what's happened for me in the last year. I think when Jesus says, um, consider with 10,000, if you can oppose the one coming against you with 20,000, notice he doesn't say, if you can't win the war, just stay home and say, well, I've got my kingdom over here and that one's got his kingdom over there. What Jesus actually says is very uh, akin to uh, what he said elsewhere, which is like, if you can't win, send a surrender team and delegates for peace. I believe Jesus is actually saying, consider whether you can afford to oppose me. I think that's what Jesus is actually saying. In this story, Jesus is the one with 20,000. And he's saying, I want you to surrender and to submit. I don't want you to preserve your kingdom. I want you to surrender your kingdom to his kingdom. I think that's what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying, I want you to surrender. He's not saying, hold on to your autonomy. He's saying, send a delegation of peace. So I don't think this is actually just a war, like go, go kick somebody's rear end. And if you can't kick somebody's rear end, then just stay home. I think he's saying, I want you to decide whether you can afford to resist God. And I just want to say one of the things that the Lord is actually asking all of us to consider is whether we will preserve our own kingdoms at all costs or whether we'll surrender our kingdom to him. If we'll submit, 
There's a passage in the Bible where Paul talks about the thoughts of all before God being laid bare. And in the Greek language, the image, the picture is of a person who's uh, lost a battle on their knees. And the idea of, a thought of being laid bare before God um, in the Greek language means to bend back the neck. It's like to, to bend back the neck to where you, you could lose your life. Um, this is the picture of, of surrender, and it's terrifying. It's why we don't do it. And some of us have tried Christianity apart from submission and surrender, and it doesn't work very well. I would submit to you that Jesus says, I want you to send a delegation of peace because I want you to be enfolded into what I'm doing rather than you tacking me into a really busy life. Just tack it on, bolt it on. Do you see how provocative this conversation is around discipleship? It's like a reordering of our whole lives, our whole priorities. And then when Jesus ends by saying, sell all your stuff, what he, what he is saying, again, using hyperbolic Jewish rabbinical teaching is he's saying, you just can't take all that stuff with you. That's the last thing we see in the text. You just can't do it. You can't take it. Don't let the stuff get in the way. And for you and me, this stuff could be people. It could be ideas. It could be relationships. It could actually be possessions. It could be all kinds of things. He's not just asking you to be poor for the sake of being poor. What he's saying is think about whether you're traveling light enough to go do the thing that God's calling you to go and do. And some of us, candidly, we're just not. We're traveling too heavy. We're just carrying too much. I'm carrying too much. You're carrying too much. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is, I want you to really count the cost and decide whether or not you want to do this. And I think throughout our lives at various junctures, the invitation comes up again. It's an invitation again where Jesus says, I want you just to think about how, how you're doing this walk thing with me. How, how is it going? And are there places where he's asking us to count the cost afresh and anew? And I think he is. I think that's what he's doing. I think that's what he's doing in me. And I think that's what he's wanting to do in you. This idea of sending a delegation of peace, I just think that's such a powerful idea where Jesus is saying, if you, if you come for peace, I will give you peace. If you come for me, I will, I will, I will welcome your surrender. And I'll, I'll treat you with kindness. Following Jesus will cost you and me, but there is so much joy in surrender. And some of us just don't know how to do it. It's really hard to surrender. So here's the spirit of, of some of what I want to ask you to think about as you enter into your week. I think that the idea of planning to finish involves living your life with the end in mind. You know, if you just do this through life, you, you'll never know whether you arrived where you wanted to arrive. And I do believe that one of the things Jesus is asking us to consider, let's just put the question up, is what would you like to be true about you and said about you at your funeral? I've known some pretty bad people, and you have too, like we all have. Uh, and even the worst people don't say, you know, I would like it to be said about me that I won all my arguments, I made a lot of money, I ran over people. N even bad people wouldn't say that out loud, for the most part. 
But I think that one of the questions that one of the things values that this gets at is this idea of Jesus saying, I want you to plan to finish well. I want you to learn how to follow me. So if that were true, if you followed him, what, what would be said about you at your death? We have an opportunity to begin to think about that. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to the, um, to the woods. I'm going to spend um, four days in the woods by myself um, over my birthday, actually, to hold an answer and ask this question before God. Just hiking, camping, asking, what do I want to be true about me when I'm dead? What do I want people to say with authenticity? And I would just encourage you to begin to ask God, what does it look like in light of your call to follow Jesus? What would that mean that my life would look like at the end? And then we start to live with the end in mind. That's what discipleship is. It's living your life with the end in mind. So we're going to be still just for a few moments. You will not answer this question in three minutes. I will not answer it in four days. Uh, in some respect, I've been asking this question for about two years. So I want us to start the hard work of naming your end and then begin to think about where the Lord's asking you to put your life with intention in that direction. So we're going to be still for a few moments and then I'll come back. Uh, I'll invite us to communion, but first let's just be still and ask a really, really, really big question. If we're able to stand together.